Thank you, Megan, for that time of prayer. And our hearts do go out to those families who are experiencing indescribable grief. Um, it's kind of a, it's definitely a, a bittersweet feeling as we close up our door of ministry that we've had here downtown at McCurdy's Comedy Theater for the last five years and six months, seven months. It's been really cool. There's been a lot of, been some challenges, but there's been a lot of opportunities we've had because of it. And so as we launch into our new door of ministry over on Lockwood Ridge, uh, just want to point out again to you guys how much time the, the team that does the setup and teardown puts in each week so you can come and enjoy the worship. And so now they have all this extra time. <laughs> so now they have all this extra time. I don't have to pay them as much. So <laughs> just joking people. Okay. Um, it's a good crowd for Memorial Day weekend. I was, thank you guys for here. And for those of you, a letter to the church in Sarasota, to those of you that aren't here on Memorial Day, I know your works. That's okay. We're going to continue with our series on Revelation. It's week nine. This is a letter to Philadelphia, not the American one. Okay? A uh, couple things uh, in, by way of introduction. Does God have, do you think, a, um, for lack of a better term, a special place in his heart? For the American church? Can the Bible be read as Americans? I mean, yes, we're Americans and we read it, but can it be read from an American perspective? I think we tend to interpret Scripture from an American perspective, and I understand it's easy to do because, well, we're Americans. <laughs> you know, and sometimes it's okay, but I believe that reading Scripture as Americans, doesn't serve us very well. I mean, because the American church experience is so atypical to the rest of the world and, frankly, most of church history. And if we read Scripture primarily from the perspective of an American, we can easily slip into flawed interpretations, and we miss out on something that's much bigger than the mere 246 years of American history. And that's it. Today's passage actually requires us to put aside our American citizenship in exchange for a greater citizenship, our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. This passage is also a prime example of how we must read Revelation as we will continue to read over the next several months, if we really want to learn what it's truly saying. If we really want to break free from the popular interpretations of Revelation that I think in many ways some of them are quite flawed. What we have to do to read Revelation is two things. First, we have to put our American experience aside. Stop interpreting it through your experience as an American Christian. The other thing you have to do is you have to have the Old Testament in one hand and John's letter in the other. They have to be read together. So with that in mind, let's read the passage for this week, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. 
Behold, I have set before you an open door, which, is, which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. They will learn I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. History of this passage is quite fascinating. <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit about Philadelphia. You know, some of you this week have said, you know, Joe, I really wish you would show us a map of where these cities are. So I'm going to start doing that this week. So there you see where Philadelphia is. It's right. <laughs> Just kidding. Here's the, here's the actual map of the seven churches. You can see where we are. We started at Ephesus, and we traveled north to Smyrna, then Pergamon, then you started the jog east to Thyatira, then Sardis, and now we're at Philadelphia, the next to the last stop on this circuit of letters from John while he was in prison in Patmos, and we're in the city of Philadelphia. This was established, this is a relatively new city at the time, but it was established around 250 B.C. It was really used as an imperial Greek outpost so they could expand Hellenistic influence and the Greek culture into Asia Minor. It was started by a Greek emperor, no shock, who really had a close relationship with his brother. That's why it's called the city of brotherly love. And what happened as the city began to grow, it became actually a major hub for several primary trade routes throughout the region. And because of that, Koine Greek, which means common Greek, the Greek spoke by, spoken by common people, became the common language for writing most of the business contracts. And it's good because Koine Greek is a very precise language. It's not poetic like Hebrew. It's not drawn from a bunch of different languages like English. It is a precise language, perfectly good for business documents, legal contracts, government documents, personal letters, and yes, even the New Testament. So this city, Philadelphia, set on a hill between volcanoes that also sit on a significant fault line. <laughs> what a great place for a city, huh? <laughs> but because of those volcanoes there, there are significantly uh, rich ash deposits that made it a very fertile area, and it became an agricultural base. But between the volcanoes and the fault line, it was a volatile region. And in 17 AD, a catastrophic earthquake destroyed Philadelphia, along with dozens of other cities, Sardis, that we studied, included. And then Caesar Tiberius rebuilt the city and named it New Caesarea, or New Caesar, and because he rebuilt the city out of ruins, it became a passionate focal place for Caesar worship. This is a key point, and we'll give you more on this later. And then we see the church that's in Philadelphia. It is pressured, persecuted, and Jesus calls it powerless. This beautiful, precious, faithful little church, which was started by Paul, just like all the others that we've read about, it was the antithesis to everything we saw in the church in Sardis last week. This church in Philadelphia lived under constant threat 
of death and poverty and scrutiny within this culture of seizure worship. And there was another resentful group. It was Jewish synagogues who had already syncretized to Caesar worship and resented Christians for not doing it. See, the synagogues had fully embraced this syncretism that we've taught you about the last few weeks. They had fully embraced Caesar worship and all the benefits that comes with it. And these synagogues resented Christians for not doing it for two main reasons. Why would they resent the Christians for not worshiping Caesar? First of all, because Rome associated Christianity with Judaism. Many Jews felt that these stubborn, arrogant Christians put Jewish synagogues at risk. Also, who do you Christians think you are? We are the synagogue. We are God's chosen door. We are the ones that reveal truth from Jehovah. If we say it's okay to syncretize with Rome, it's okay. We get it straight from God. They felt like they had the keys to truth. So the synagogues, in the name of the authority they believed that they were given by God, relentlessly persecuted the church in Philadelphia. This church was banned, canceled, boycotted, targeted, threatened, and yes, often brutally beaten and even murdered and executed. Even further, those running those synagogues constantly spied on the church, turning them into the Roman authorities. That's why Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. By the way, this is the second time, do you guys remember? This is the second time he's used that phrase describing synagogues who persecuted Christians. The first one was in his letter to the suffering church in Smyrna. All the Christians had to do was syncretize. Worship Caesar, who would rebuild the city that they lived in, and they would relieve all the economic, cultural, societal pressure, but they refused to do it. And the church's faithfulness cost them dearly. Poverty, vulnerability, uncertainty, and Jesus says with little power. You know what that really means? Little influence. You know, conversely, the American church seems obsessed with gathering political power and influence, doesn't it? Should we even be? I mean, Jesus glorifies a church that had no influence. Something to think about. So that's the history of the passage. What about the theology? What does God do and why and how does he do it? I've titled this section, Keys, Doors, Names, and Pillars. There is a lot here, so bear with me. First of all, I want you to see this idea of the uh, pillars and names and all this stuff. All of it is related to Isaiah chapter 22, verses 22 and 23. See, you cannot read Revelation without reading its Old Testament counterparts. This whole letter that he writes to Philadelphia is a prophetic messianic unveiling of the prophecy in Isaiah. Let's read it. I will place on his shoulder the keys of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Doesn't that sound familiar? I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, like a pillar in the temple. He will become a throne of honor to his father. The context of this prophecy is an Assyrian invasion upon Israel and Jerusalem and God demoting a traitor within the king's cabinet, the main king's representative, the secretary of state, if you will. His name was Shebna. He was full of pride. Thought he was firmly rooted in his position of authority and power as the king's representative, but he was unfaithful to the king and he betrayed the king 
and Israel by collaborating with the Assyrian invaders. So God demotes him and gives his position to a new man, Eliakim. And that's what he says, I will give Eliakim the keys to the kingdom of David. This is the replacement of the unfaithful Shebna with the faithful Eliakim. This is what Jesus is revealing to the church in Philadelphia as it relates to the synagogues of Satan. Do you see what I'm saying here? Jesus declares, I am the Holy One with all spiritual authority and all power. I have the keys to open and shut all doors to the kingdom of heaven. He who decides to get in, he who decides who's thrown out, he who decides who gets access to Jehovah, it's not the synagogue of Satan, it's me, Jesus, the Holy One. See, this is a prime example of how Revelation must be read with the Old Testament in one hand and John's letter in the other. You see a replacement here, don't you? Where one unfaithful servant is replaced by a faithful one. Jesus says, I am replacing the synagogues of Satan with you, church in Philadelphia with little power. Then let's talk about the key and the door. This is beautiful. Jesus is declaring this transition of spiritual authority from Israel to his church, and he uses these beautiful analogies and symbols. So as synagogues were arrogantly shutting their doors to the church, Jesus says, He's given the church the keys and the real door. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father but through him and his church. And while the synagogue of Satan shuts you out because of your faithfulness, I have opened a new door into the kingdom. You may have little power now, but they will have no power to open or close the doors that I am giving you. You have that power, and one day they will come to you, and they will realize, wow, they are the ones with the keys, not us. If they want to come to me, the synagogue of Satan, if they want to come to me, they will have to go through you, through your preaching, and through your practice of the sacraments like the Lord's table. Isn't this a humbling honor? But isn't it also a little bit frightening? We, the church, hold the keys to the kingdom and the doors that God uses to let people in and out of. So if that's the case, then why do we waste time obsessing over petty stuff when we have been given the keys to the door to heaven? Then he talks about this hour of trial. Actually... I might have skipped something. Let me see. Yes. Let me talk about this hour of trial. He promises the church will be spared this hour of trial. What is it? He says it's soon coming. This isn't the popular seven-year tribulation theology that's out there. Many teach that this promise Jesus is making is that he will take this church up before this devastating seven years of global suffering begins. Let me tell you something. Jesus never promised to spare his church from tribulation. He actually says the opposite, doesn't he? He says, you will suffer on account of me. And it is clear this church, along with Smyrna, was already in 
tribulation. Not only that, John said in chapter 1, remember what he said in our first message? He says, I am a partner with you in the tribulation. Remember the second Jesus and the two Jesus' messages we did a couple weeks ago? There's mercy, Jesus, and then there's judgment, Jesus. You guys remember that if you were here? The trial that he's talking about that they are spared from is the judgment Jesus on the day of the Lord. When Jesus comes back and he raptures his church into the heavens and then he judges all evil on the earth and sets everything right and then we're forever with him, this is the judgment Jesus side of the day of the Lord. The faithful who overcome are spared the trial of the day of judgment because we've already been declared righteous through the work of Jesus who has the keys to the kingdom. Then he says, I'm going to make you immovable pillars. Check out this verse in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 17. He sets up the pillars in front of the temple. This is from the Old Testament. One on the south, the other on the north. The south he called Joachim, which means the Lord establishes. That's the name of one temple on the south side. And the north, Boaz, means the Lord strengthens. This is in 2 Chronicles. So you understand, like, pillars are the most immovable part of a structure. And when Solomon built the temple, he named the two main pillars on the south and the north. He named them the Lord who establishes and the Lord who strengthens. Though the synagogue of Satan kicked them out, Jesus says he will make, you, he will make them immovable pillars in his new temple. And you understand, these first century believers would have read in community together and understood what Jesus was talking about is not an earthly temple, but a heavenly spiritual one. That's why we don't call our new building we're going into the sanctuary. We call it the auditorium. Why? Because we're the sanctuary. He promises to establish them. He promises to strengthen them in his new temple. They cannot be moved. Nothing the synagogue of Satan can do can ever remove their power with the keys and the doors. This, my friends, is eternal security. These believers lived in poverty and vulnerability and uncertainty, yet Jesus calls them pillars of establishment and strength in his new temple. Once again, do you see how you cannot read Revelation without reading its Old Testament counterpart right alongside? You would have never seen that if you did this. And then there's these new names. Oh, these are incredible. All right, this is like, just so you know, this is like history, theology, geeked out, super cool. <laughs> okay? Watch how Jesus makes this letter to the church in Philadelphia relevant to them. He speaks to them in ways and in terms that they would be able to apply to their current conditions. Another reason why we can't read it as Americans. Remember how Philadelphia was renamed? You guys remember that? And worship Caesar because he rebuilt it from the ground up. Remember that? Well, Jesus one-ups him here. Oh, yeah, you, you renamed the city of Philadelphia, New Caesarea? Well, Jesus says the church will bear the name of Jehovah, the name of his new city, heaven, and his own new name. So while Caesar rebuilt and renamed Philadelphia, which they had experienced and seen, Jesus is rebuilding New Jerusalem and putting our name on it. Wow. You think New Caesarea is cool? 
Wait till you see New Jerusalem that's got your name on it. Jesus says the identity of who he is will be forever tied to this church with little power. And he is the Holy One. He has the power to do this. The suffering, rejected church in Philadelphia has his authority, it has his identity, it has his security, and it has his status as God's chosen people with the keys to the kingdom. I know it's hard, Philadelphia, but you will endure. You will get through. Hang on, because there's a bigger picture. Something greater is coming, something better, and it's not going to be in Philadelphia. In fact, it's not even going to be of this world. It's coming from heaven, and it will have your name on it. That's pretty good theology, right? Check out the personal. What are we supposed to do, and why, and how do we do it? There is something bigger. This was my sermon preview this week. I thought it would offend more people, but apparently it didn't. Is the American church guilty of revelation narcissism when we study the Bible? So what do I mean by revelation narcissism? You know what Philadelphia endured? That's what real tribulation looks like. That's what real pressure looks like. And it really, let's just be honest, it's very hard for Americans to relate. Now, there are churches in the world today who endure this type of pressure that Philadelphia did. They endure this type of persecution for their faithfulness. And I believe that those churches can probably appreciate these promises Jesus makes much more than we can from our limited American experience. As I was writing this sermon this week, something kept popping up in my head over and over and over and I believe it is this, we suffer from revelation narcissism in America. We tend to think we are the crown jewel of the church. Honestly, things American Christians get worked up over are kind of petty and embarrassing compared to what Philadelphia was enduring. Christians on the left and on the right, when elections don't go our way, or when SCOTUS rules the wrong way, we lose our collective minds. And then we, here's what we do. We come to Scripture as victims, looking for something in Scripture to affirm our political, cultural hopes and dreams. We want our nation to look like this and be like this. And there's nothing wrong with wanting your nation to be a great place to live, but it cannot be your primary hope. It cannot be your primary dream. We cannot read Revelation as American citizens, but as citizens of something much bigger, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus doesn't promise to give us the keys to power in America. It's the keys to the kingdom he promises to give us. And so for a bit this morning, I challenge you, let's just put aside our American Christianity for a moment and step back and get a bigger picture, perhaps a more hopeful picture. This letter to the faithful, suffering church in Philadelphia is an important, crucial reminder of all the responsibility and the privileges as holders of the keys and keepers of the door and bearers of the name of Jesus in his new city that we have. Jesus has been building this new city since his resurrection. And let me, I'm going to show you something really cool. 
You know what this letter is directly connected to? To what Jesus promised Peter when he gave him a new name and a new identity. See if you can pick up on the similarities. Are you ready? On this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom, and whatever you bind or whatever you shut on earth will be shut in heaven. Whatever you loose or open on earth shall be opened or loosed in heaven. Do you see that? This is also from Isaiah. The letter written to this precious church in Philadelphia that it's really hard for us as Americans to identify with reminds us of what Jesus said to Peter. You know what we're reminded of? That nations like America come and go. The kingdom of heaven is what endures, and evil will never prevail against it. We are reminded God has made his church an immovable pillar in his spiritual temple. We are reminded God will keep his church faithful no matter the circumstances or suffering that we may face. We are reminded of our responsibility primarily is to the kingdom of heaven before any other, including our great nation. We are reminded he has entrusted us with the keys to that kingdom, to the doors that no one else can open or close except the church through its preaching and the sacraments. We are reminded we as children of God no longer go by our own name. We carry his name before even our own, certainly before our citizenship on earth. We are reminded to put our identity with the kingdom of heaven as the king of kings' new chosen representatives before our own personal, cultural, political, or national identity as Americans. For grace life, God has given us a new door, has he not? A new identity in our new neighborhood, and we have a job to do. God has given us the keys to the kingdom, and we intend to use them in our new home at Lockwood Ridge. I don't know what it's going to look like. Am I a little nervous? Oh, yeah. It's a bigger building. What if it looks empty on the first Sunday? People are going to freak out. What if we can't afford it? What if no one comes? I'm nervous. But, man, I'm excited. This is why, because we've been given the keys to the kingdom, this is why I can tell you one thing we will keep doing. We will continue to preach the gospel. We will continue to observe the sacraments, like the one we will learn about next week, with a preview, watch this, from next week's passage. Whoops, I didn't put it up. I'll just read it. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. What's that sound like to you? That's the Lord's table. So on our last Sunday here, why don't we use one of the keys he's given us to enter our new door of ministry today? By celebrating our kingdom identity with the table of the Lord, the one Jesus gave to us to remember him by. So I'm going to ask Megan to come up, and we're going to, I'm going to give you, we know this, that these cups have been a little hard to use the last six years. <laughs> 
So start opening them now. How's that? <laughs> How you guys doing? You getting them open? <laughs> All right. So when we celebrate the Lord's table, you understand there's nothing magic in the ritual. First of all, it's an act of obedience, but also it communicates to the world who we identify with. We don't celebrate America's table. We celebrate the Lord's table first. Yes, we're Americans, and yes, we love our country, but we love our Jesus far more. At least we should. And so when we do these sacraments, we are saying to the world around us, we are children of God, we bear his name, and the keys to the kingdom are the gospel and the sacraments. So he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup, and after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup that is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink, do this in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would move in our hearts in such a way that our love for country will always be second place to our love for you and the kingdom. Lord Jesus, we are very humbled and a little bit in awe that you have given us the key, the open door makes us a little nervous because to whom much is given, much is required and you have given us much. And Lord, while we don't really know how to relate to what real tribulation is, we still ask you to keep us faithful. Faithful to the gospel. Faithful to the sacraments. And as we launch into this new door that you have opened to us in this new community that needs to be loved. Lord, we don't go in with the keys as arrogant people. We are broken, sinful, humble people who cannot believe you've called us out of darkness in the light. 
with all the sins that we have and somehow you've transformed us by your spirit and you've given us keys to the kingdom? Lord, just help us to use them. Keep us from being lazy, complacent, stagnant. And as we convene together again in community next week in our new location, Lord, I pray, Lord, I pray that you would help us to escape any narcissism about how special we might be outside of what you have done for us and through us. We acknowledge we can do no ministry here or in our new location unless you give us power from the Spirit of God. Keep us faithful to the gospel. Teach us to love those we come into contact with. We're so grateful at Grace Life that you've given us a new door and a new identity in a new neighborhood. And we know that we have a job to do. Empower us to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, we love you. We're excited about this next chapter. We'll see you next week at Lockwood Ridge.